Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group for November 6, 2019, show number 299. So close to 300. So close we can taste it. I'm Jared Smith in Charleston, South Carolina. we got a pretty full panel tonight. We've got uh, Tim Pounds, Evan Fisher, Peter Planamente, Ricky Matthews, Shay Gibson, um, and 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 all of you at home. Uh, so I am very excited to have everybody with you. And, and, and tonight we have uh, Al-Sayed Talat. The, the director of off the Office of Projects, Planning, and Analysis at NOAA's Satellite Information Service about the Cosmic 2 project. It, it's an experiment that looks at our weather in a different way than we might be used to from weather satellites. And we're going to learn a lot about that tonight. I'm really excited about it. It's really cool. Um, before we bring them in, though, we're going to just do a couple housekeeping notes. As always, this is a live broadcast, so we'd love your questions and comments for our guests. Um, and if you're listening to us on the audio podcast, you know, uh, Never fear, we're going to get you know, all the information that you can find out more about Cosmic 2 uh, towards the end of the interview. And then we're going to go and talk a little bit about some uh, scary Halloween tornadoes. And we're going to and talk about a big old cold blast that's going to be coming our way. So lots to get to tonight. So let's just get right into it. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Dr. Talat, welcome. Um, welcome to the show. Uh, first timer. So we always like to ask how you got to... Uh, how you got into this weather thing? Well, I, I, I was an uh, aerospace engineer as an undergrad, and uh, I was very interested in uh, um, how we can make measurements of the environment and, the, um, and space as well. Uh, so for graduate school, I went into atmospheric and space physics, uh, and where I learned both weather, uh, terrestrial weather, planetary weather, uh, weather on other planets and uh, also space physics as well. So what we call space weather, the uh, the events on the sun and in the near Earth environment that uh, uh, can affect our technological society. And so so from that, I uh, uh, progressed into research on space weather and uh, also the atmosphere and then uh, eventually found myself to my, my way to NOAA where I can help uh, the uh, weather enterprise and uh, uh, make the measurements that we need for uh, to protect our uh, society. That's excellent. That's a uh, way cooler than any of my path. That's for sure. Holy cow! <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk a little bit about Cosmic Two. This is a this is a very interesting project using a constellation of satellites um, that you know that use uh, GPS signals in an interesting way. Tell us all about it. So. Cosmic 2 uses a technique called radio occultation as its main way of measuring the uh, atmosphere. And what that is, is that uh, GPS sends out signals and all global navigation satellites send out signals. And uh, as those signals pass through the atmosphere, they're bent, uh, they're refracted and the signals are bent just like uh, you see refraction through a prism. Uh, or, or through water. And from the bending, uh, we can deduce properties of the atmosphere. We can measure, uh, we know that the bending, the refraction is caused by temperature changes, uh, density changes, water vapor in the atmosphere, and also the, uh, the electron content and the ion content in the atmosphere. And so, so we can deduce properties of the atmosphere by measuring how the bending happens when we measure it from satellites that are in low Earth orbit. And so that's the occultation part. We're moved this as a satellite moves around uh, the Earth, it's receiving the GPS signals 
and it's the signals are being bent and occulted by the uh, the the atmosphere of the Earth, and uh, and that way we can get vertical profiles of temperature density uh, and uh, electron density in the in the atmosphere as well as water vapor. Wow, that is incredibly high level. I'm trying to wrap my wrap my mind around how some of that works. So, can you explain a little bit about how once the GPS signals and radio occultation occurs? Are there, I'm gonna ask a really lame question because I don't know what I'm talking about here. Are there disks on the ground that perhaps measure uh, those bent rays? I mean, how is that, once they send out the signal, how does it come back? So so, so the, the signals are sent continuously by the global navigation satellites. And uh, we do have, we, you know, your cell phone uses those signals for positioning uh, as well. And then if you have a GPS in your car, that uses those signals for uh, positioning as, uh, um, and finding location where you are as well. Uh, but when you see, and, and then we can also measure those properties of the atmosphere and, and ionosphere in particular from uh, receivers on the ground by looking at the delay in the signals and looking at different frequencies, the, the several frequencies in the, in the, that these global navigation satellites send out. And from that delay, we can deduce the kind of the column of the electron density in the atmosphere, for instance, or what's called total electron content. But when we are when we're in low Earth orbit, the path that these signals take is through through kind of the layer of the atmosphere as it goes through like this. Uh, the, the path from a GPS satellite to a low Earth orbit satellite goes through the atmosphere, and that is bent by the, uh, the, the properties of the atmosphere. And then we have instruments on the Cosmic 2 satellites and other satellites that use radio occultation that, that, uh, that measure the GPS signals and at a very, at very high rate. And by looking at the time and, and, and the different frequency of those signals, we can deduce uh, um, uh, how much bending happened uh, in, if, of the, of the signals from the satellites. And that way we can um, figure out what the temperature and, and pressure and, and density are. How did the idea to do something like this come about? Was it something that was being used in, in other you know, research ideas or monitoring other things using the same kind of method and then was applied to weather? It, it's, it, it, um, actually, it's a good question. I, I don't, don't know the history of the first GPS occultation, but it's something that uh, they knew they, they knew that the uh, uh, that the signals from uh, GPS satellites were affected by weather um, by the properties of the atmosphere and the ionosphere from the very first beginning. This is uh, electromagnetic prop wave propagation. Uh, we know that they're going to be affected, um, mm -hmm. and then uh, scientists were able to to use that information to exploit uh, and see if they could uh, uh, measure the the effect. Uh, well enough that they can that they can find the properties uh, and retrieve the properties of temperature and pressure and, and ionosphere. It was uh, it was a technique that was tested out uh, a few decades ago, actually, uh, on uh, through planes and 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 other uh, uh, other um, uh, um, uh, means on the ground as well. Um, but uh, the first satellites that use radio occultation happened actually uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, when uh, we tested out the, the instruments on satellites. And then Cosmic 2 is actually building upon the success 
we had with uh, Cosmic One, which was also a joint U.S.-Taiwan um, uh, suite of satellites, six satellites, that primarily use radio occultation to measure the uh, atmosphere and the ionosphere. So Cosmic Two is actually a, a constellation of satellites, correct? It's not just one satellite. Talk about them working together. Okay. So yes, it's six satellites. They're in uh, 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 low Earth orbit, and they're they've got a, a, um, a subtropical inclination. So they're focused on measurements at the uh, near the equator and in the subtropics. And uh, um, by having six satellites, we can get um, a very dense coverage, both in in uh, in geographic coverage of of the occultations, but also just as importantly in local time at any one any one second. So the ultimate con uh, the final constellation that we're going to have is going to be six satellites separated in local time around the Earth, so that uh, uh, you will measure they're two hours apart, and they'll be able to measure um, all all local times uh, at the same time, basically and global coverage instantaneously. What is the, I guess, end game with this data? Is, has it been thought as to where this data will go? Will it be eventually implemented into weather models or will they uh, you know, kind of use it for more research purposes? What's the, what's the end game with it? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> so uh, um, why we, we are primarily interested in using this data and it's been proven to uh, radio occultation data has been proven already through Cosmic One and other, other radio occultation measurements to improve the numerical weather prediction models. And uh, um, so with Cosmic Two, we anticipate the same impact on our numerical weather prediction systems. But also it's certainly gonna be used for uh, um, uh, research as well. The dense coverage we're going to get from Cosmic Two is is fairly unprecedented in terms of the the coverage of, of moisture and the cover uh, in the in the tropical region where where most of the moisture in the atmosphere resides, and in terms of the dense coverage of temperature and dense and, and density and, and pressure there as well. And and I also want to mention that the, the ionosphere uh, it also will give us a a whole new set of measurements for the ionosphere, very dense coverage that'll, um, that we're going to use, the U.S. is going to use to uh, essentially kickstart our uh, numerical ionospheric prediction system, a data assimilation for us ionosphere as well. Uh, and, uh, and so that's going to be a leap forward that we anticipate from the Cosmic 2 measurements. Very cool. Um, I, I want to get back to the ionosphere because I want to understand more of what you're, what you're looking at in the ionosphere. Uh, for those watching what that means. But also I want to ask, do these, do you work at all with the Cygnus? Like we know of other constellation, uh, satellite constellations that are out there. Cygnus launched a couple of years ago. There's seven in that one. Uh, A-Train. There's other one. There's a whole like um, bunch of these constellations out there. Are, are they working together to get data uh, pretty much compiled for all the dynamic and statistical modeling that you're looking for? So we are, we are actually, that's to answer your, your uh, second question first. Uh, we are actually looking at how we can utilize uh, Cygnus in an operational sense uh, at NOAA. So uh, it's, it's got, um, um, its original purpose was to look at uh, um, uh, ocean, ocean winds, or I should say uh, winds, uh, winds in, in hurricanes and cyclones. 
Um, and so we're, we're seeing how we can use that data right now. It's something that uh, we're very interested in a future capability, uh, for instance, and whether we can actually use the data in a real-time sense also from, from the mission as it is. The other, other aspect of Cygnus that is, is very exciting is that it, it, the, the uh, GPS reflectance. So Cygnus is a little different um, it's the same sort of instrument, uh, um, uh, GNSS, G, using the GNSS signals, but instead of looking at the occultation that happens to those GNSS signals in the atmosphere, it's looking at the reflectance of those signals and, and off, of, off of the uh, uh, hurricanes or off of the ground, uh, off of the ocean surface. And, and that way it can uh, look at winds off of, off of water but and that's how it would get the the ocean and hurricane winds. But um, over land, it's actually proving a a very interesting technique to look at groundwater and uh, and how uh, and and flooding, for instance, uh, and and, and uh, river river proliferation and water proliferation through rivers and and channels. So so that's a that's a technique that we we think uh, might be very useful for our, our operational purposes and, and research as well. Um, to, and to kind of answer your, uh, uh, another part of that question, uh, the way we use these, uh, these data in concert, um, uh, sometimes it's in, in uh, uh, directly in numerical weather prediction in a real time sense. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, it's, it's through kind of uh, um, uh, combined analysis of, of different types of data synthesized into, for instance, sea surface height or, or a combined analysis that doesn't need that real time uh, aspect to it, but is something that uh, is needed by scientists or, uh, or uh, uh, operators um, as a, in a less than a real time sense. And uh, and oftentimes and always we use it for uh, research. We combine the, the different types of data, and uh, uh, the, each has its own uh, advantages in terms of cadence or coverage or the a different way of attacking the measurement uh, um, and used that way. So one advantage of radio occultation is that it's got it's 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 essentially self calibrating. It's got absolute calibration. Um, and so, so it can be used to help calibrate or, or help define the, the altitudes for other types of measurements. So we do uh, infrared soundings and microwave soundings are integral to our, our, our uh, weather forecasting and weather operations. Um, and uh, they have their own advantages and disadvantages. But one thing that they, they, those two techniques have is that uh, the, the weighting function, in other words, where the information is coming from, is, is spread over altitudes in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the atmospheric column. So what radio occultation allows us to do is, is help define where, in a statistical sense, where, those, where that, uh, to help calibrate where the signals are coming from, from those other techniques. So it actually improves how we use uh, the other, other parts of our uh, weather uh, observing systems. So like advanced scatterometer readings, like th those are, are those still being used or is that part of your program or is that mainly limited to ASCAP? 
The scatterometry system is is used um, uh, uh, both ASCAT and then uh, kind of the other other frequency that was available from uh, SCATSAT, the the Indian um, uh, mission. And in fact, we have a partnership with India uh, to obtain that data in, in real time, where we're 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 uh, um, uh, using one of our ground stations to help the latency uh, of that data um, and 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 uh, uh, provide it to operators in real time. So uh, all that data, all information that we can, we, we, we look at how we can use it both operationally and in research as well. Very good. Um, the, getting back to the, the original question was, you're looking at the ionosphere in particular. Yeah. What, what exactly are you um, looking for? What, what sort of properties are we, are we kind of going for for the data? So, so, I mean, Cosmic Two is going to be a a uh, um, uh, is hopefully going to be a very uh, large boon to ionospheric research. Cosmic One certainly was. It provided us a very dense coverage, um, kind of unprecedented coverage of of the ionosphere, and and helped us helped us define the morphology of the ionosphere better than we've ever done before. Uh, and uh, Cosmic Two, with its dense set of measurements, is 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 definitely going to do that. And the lower atmosphere is a very dynamic region uh, of the ionosphere. Um, excuse me, the lower latitudes uh, are, are a very dynamic region of the ionosphere. So understanding the physics there is very important to the whole global system, uh, electrodynamic global system. And uh, um, in particular, we're also gonna be looking at, uh, uh, and why we care about the ionosphere is because, is because that's, uh, um, it can affect the GPS, and GNSS, the Global Navigation Satellite System, uh, signals in terms of disrupting navigation and positioning of those signals, and also can affect high-frequency communications. And so, so the 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 different things that can affect it in the ionosphere are both the large-scale uh, morphology, the different gradients that you see in the ionosphere, any any movement in the ionosphere, any change, rapid change, which can happen because of geomagnetic forcing uh, or even lower atmosphere forcing can affect that. But also the very small scale changes are the ones that really affect uh, the navigation, to so disrupt the navigation systems. And that's, uh, that's called scintillation, very small changes, very small scale disturbances or features or waves in the ionosphere that can affect uh, uh, navigation systems. And that's that's something that Cosmic 2 will be able to uh, um, uh, both allow us to research and kind of give us maps of statistical, statistically uh, where that scintillation is happening under what conditions and possibly in the future maybe give us a real-time uh, capability to uh, both now cast and maybe forecast that scintillation. Our conversation continues coming up next. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. So is Cosmic 2 a big upgrade from Cosmic 1? Can you explain the difference between the two different systems? Yeah, um, I'll explain. The big improvement is the, uh, or the big uh, upgrade, I would say, excuse me, is in the, is in the, uh, uh, the improvement in the radio occultation instrument itself. It's the uh, tri, it's tri-G, uh, so uh, tri-G, so Try uh, the TGRS, the Try the Try Global Navigation System satellite, uh, global satellite, global navigation satellite system 
radio occultation system instrument. So TGRS for short. We love acronym from weather. Yeah, and and that that instrument is uh, um, is a major improvement is able to the first sweet uh, first generation of, of cosmic instrument, uh, cosmic uh, radio occultation instruments, looked at GPS satellites. This one is gonna be able to look at uh, um, uh, GPS and GLONASS. And uh, hopefully in the future, if we uh, are able to do the software upgrades to look at Galileo as well. So that's the, where the Tri-G comes in. And so that increases the number of occultations that, that it, can, uh, it can actually make. And as well as as improvements in the processors, uh, it actually has two sets of processors so that it can make those additional uh, um, uh, occultations. So we're gonna get uh, um, quantitatively many more occultations than we, are, than we did from Cosmic One. Um, in addition, there's a difference in the, in the inclination. Cosmic One was in a, a, a near, a, a, uh, high latitude inclination, uh, such that it it was able to make a uh, uh, global measurements in both in both local time is spaced around in local time as well six satellites, um, and but it was also making a good latitude extent out into the poles even, but that meant at the equator it was very sparse data. Uh, Cosmic one is in uh, a low latitude inclination. Uh, and so between 40 and 40, this is where it makes its measurements, 40, 40 degrees latitude uh, and 40 degrees latitude north and south, it's very, very high density data. And this is the region that from a numerical weather prediction is, is it, uh, we believe is going to be very instrumental in, in advancing our capability. Because this is the region, of course, where cyclones start to form, tropical storms and cyclones form, where hurricanes get their start before they propagate out into mid-latitudes. And this is obviously, the, of course, the region also where most of the moisture of the atmosphere is there. And so most of the engine that drives uh, severe weather is there. And so, so uh, having that, that very dense measurements, more measurements and very dense measurements is, is uh, gonna be very impactful. Now, there's another, another uh, uh, um, uh, improvement to the instruments is that Cosmic 2 has better antennas to uh, receive the signal from uh, uh, the GPS or GNSS satellites. And so that allows us to penetrate, uh, what I mean by penetrate means that we can get signals uh, at higher quality, uh, in other words, less error, or more power down in the, into the lower atmosphere, further down near the surface. Uh, and so, so the one limitation of previous occultation, uh, radio occultation measurements has been down below, it's been too noisy to really use in numerical weather prediction. Uh, but uh, with Cosmic 2, it can get, it can make higher quality measurements down lower, again, where most of the moisture is. Uh, and, and that, that's, that's one of the, one of the uh, holy grails of, 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 of atmospheric science is getting those measurements in the planetary boundary layer down lower. And so, so again, we feel that uh, once that's fully utilized by the American weather prediction systems, and they, they do have to evolve in order to use that uh, 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 optimally down below, that that's gonna be incredibly impactful.
we've talked a lot about weather prediction and how it's measuring, you know, temperature and, and moisture levels and how that can impact numerical weather prediction models. Talk about climate for a second. Are we going to be able to monitor our global climate better with Cosmic 2 satellite? Well, uh, I think it's it's it just in the in the context of being able to make uh, um, uh, 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 continue the the measurements that we have in temperature and, and pressure with uh, with a radio occultation technique, which I said is uh, is is self calibrating, and so so that's something that's um, we started doing in the early two thousands, uh, and having that continuous uh, measurement is. Uh, would help kind of long-term trends of uh, understanding temperature and pressure and, and density. And again, it helps also calibrate the other instruments that also have a long, uh, long history and then are going to be key in the future for, uh, uh, for our, our both the weather record and uh, weather prediction. Tell me just a little bit about um, the, the guys and, and women, the women and men who are taking this data once it comes from a satellite, who are the people on the ground who are then diving into this data? And what do they have to do with the data when it comes back from the satellite? Okay, um, so let me first by saying that Cosmic uh, 2, which is also known as Formasat 7 in Taiwan, is a partnership between the United States and Taiwan. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go into who, uh, what the two, the two, uh, um, uh, partners' responsibilities are so uh, Taiwan uh, provided the the satellite and is doing the command and control of the satellites. Uh, the U.S. Um, the NOAA and its partners, the U U.S. Air Force, uh, provided the instruments, um, and uh, also uh, Taiwan has uh, provided one ground station. The U.S. is providing uh, nine ground stations um, for for getting that data. So once we get the data, whether it's from the Taiwanese ground station or the U.S. ground station, they're distributed all around the world. Um, uh, it's a it's it's a um, ground stations are distributed evenly around the world, or uh, as evenly as possible, in order to uh, get the best latency of that data. Latency is very key to making it useful for numerical weather prediction and ionospheric uh, uh, weather prediction uh, or ionospheric uh, now casting. And so, so once that data is is uh, is received, it's distributed um, uh, to all our partners. But in particular, it's analyzed by uh, uh, excuse me, it's first analyzed by a U.S. Data Processing Center, and we do this. Uh, NOAA NOAA um, uh, works with the University Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, we contract uh, out to them. Uh, to get the processing done and produce the the, the temperature and density and uh, uh, ionospheric uh, density um, of that data, and it's also produced uh, at the Taiwanese data processing center as well. And then that is that is going to be shared to uh, basically all our our weather partners. Awesome! So it's really great whenever we have these global you know, camaraderies and global partnerships with different nations and stuff, sharing our data and everything like that. So really cool. What is the, uh, the future? Give me a, a dream of yours in the next five years. What do you envision this project being? And maybe I'm going too wide in five years, but get the next five years or something like that. Well, I, I, I hope, I hope uh, fairly, fairly soon. Will it be able to, um, uh, 
uh, you know, I just want to say that we're in in still still in the satellite phasing uh, uh, time for the mission. So we're not even our final configuration until um, uh, about a year later from now, a year and a, a little bit later from now. But uh, I hope once that's done, in the in we get uh, we uh, we are able to see how much impact it has on the numerical weather prediction models. Because uh, that is that is the, the one of the main reasons we flew this up, uh, flew flew these satellites uh, and may, are making these measurements. Um, I think uh, in the far future, um, Cosmic Two has a, a mission life of five years, and uh, Cosmic One lasted for a lot longer than that. We even still have one satellite still making measurements, though sporadically. And uh, I hope uh, Cosmic Two uh, lasts. Uh, last uh, past five years, and uh, and we are developing the radio occultation technique uh, into the future. Um, uh, I think it still has uh, a, a promise in terms of uh, in, in both improving the instrumentation, um, but also in the novel novel uses that we now see. With, for instance, with Cygnus, the the ground reflectance and the uh, uh, um, uh, measurements over the ocean. And so, so adding that capability and understanding that capability to any future um, techniques would be, would be very exciting. And then there's also now um, uh, commercial providers of radio occultation. And that is, uh, that is something that we're investigating right now. If we can, if we can use that to augment our system uh, and, and, and increase our coverage, particularly in, in mid and high latitudes. All right. Awesome. Well, with that, I'll give it back to Jared, uh, kind of wrap up everything. Yeah, no, thank you very much. This has been fantastic. I do have one, I do have another additional question before we, uh, kind of figure out, you know, I would love to know, uh, where is this data ever going to be out there for like operational usage as, uh, uh, cause I, I feel like that there would be a lot of value in having this, these kinds of real time measurements. Um, not just for feeding the models, but also just for line forecasters, just trying to keep an eye on things. Uh, yes, yes. The plan is that uh, we're, we have, we've already, we just recently, um, on October 21st, we had the satellite initial operation, operating capable, operational capability. Uh, uh, we verified that. Um, in the, in, uh, we're gonna start giving provisional data to our partners um, uh, at the end of this month or the beginning of next month. And in February, we plan to have a neutral atmosphere initial operating capability where we basically release the data to, to the, the public and, and our, our partners uh, for, for evaluation. And, and then, um, um, so June plus 19 months, um, I can't do the math of my head, uh, basically end of, and end of November in 2020 is when we have the final operate, uh, operational capability. And that's where all the, the six spacecraft are in their final configuration. And the data is released both for the neutral atmosphere and ionosphere uh, to the public. And, and when, when I say it's released, it's gonna be resident in a, uh, uh, as soon as it's processed on the, on the system that, that provides data to um, uh, weather forecasters around the world, um, and uh, also on on the web for um, the public to use as well. 
That right now it's exciting. basically an experimental mode right now correct that, that would be yeah so we're 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 you know uh, validating the algorithms uh validating the data uh getting it ready to use for um and in, in february we'll have the initial operating capability that's fantastic uh definitely look forward to it that's uh uh, years a long way, but maybe not as long as we think. So really exciting to see that. And it'll be exciting to see, you know, just the, this technique alongside the imaging that we have, you know, on the current series of ghost satellites and, and, you know, just yet another, and, and then the polar orbiting there, I think we're, we're just getting really good at, at monitoring the atmosphere. And it's just, a, I love this stuff. It's just so fascinating. So um, where can we find out uh, more about cosmic two? Um, places uh, for our listeners to uh, uh, dial up some information. Uh, you can, you can find it on the, the NOAA website on cosmic two. Uh, there's also a UCAR website. That's, that's where, where our main uh, uh, cosmic two uh, website is. Um, uh, and so, so search for cosmic two and NOAA and cosmic two for mm -hmm. UCAR. Yeah. Cool. Uh, do you all have any social media that uh, people can follow? Uh, yes, the Nesdis, uh, Nesdis social media, uh, Twitter, um, I'm familiar with, I'm sure there's others uh, as well, uh, but uh, the Nesdis, Noah Nesdis, N-E-S-D-I-S. Awesome. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Talat, tonight. This is uh, really fantastic. Um, a lot of really good information. I, I know that we have a few panelists whose minds are currently blown, so we're going to give them an opportunity to put that, that all back together uh, for them, and uh, thank you again very much. This is, uh, this is fantastic, and uh, looking forward to seeing the data uh, this time next year, Maybe so, and we should have you back around then. So It was my pleasure. Awesome. Happy to come Absolutely. back. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. And so, um, again, Dr. Elside Talat, very fascinating, very just the, the radio occultation. I think a lot of people learned a lot of new words tonight. So uh, that is uh, that is a lot of fun. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Thanks for staying with us. We'll pick up our conversation now on this week's episode of the Carolina Weather Group. So now what we're going to do is we're, let's, we're going to toss to uh, our friend up in uh, Jersey, Mr. Peter Planamente. He's going to talk a little weather news for us. We, as, as you probably knew from last week, we had a, um, we had a bit of a severe weather event uh, for Halloween that uh, was a little bit scary with everybody trick-or-treating. Um, uh, Peter, what have you got for us as far as what came out of that event? Yeah, let's get to that news right now. Let me do a little screen share. Hopefully that'll come up. Hopefully. All right, here we go. So, uh, yeah, we had a few tornadoes uh, touched down around Halloween, pretty much the end of October. Uh, and you can see the National Weather Service confirmed that. Here's the uh, first one. If I pronounce anything wrong, forgive me. Not from the area, so, you know. <laughs> Don't shoot me. Um, so an EF0 tornado confirmed on the 22nd of October, uh, it started around, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, is, I'm guessing, okay, there you go. <laughs> so wow. our, our Jersey guys coming in great here. Yeah. I mean, the, the wrong one to be doing this, but all right. Anyway, uh, so EF zero with the wind speed of 70 miles an hour had a path width of 50 yards, uh, but luckily no fatalities or injuries. So that was a good thing. And then we go on to Halloween Day, 
Uh, National Weather Service confirmed on the 1st, November 1st, that uh, there were multiple touchdowns of an EF1 tornado in Lexington County and uh, also a tornado touchdown three times in just over eight miles from the same supercell. Crazy, right? So luckily, all of those did not have any fatalities or injuries. Uh, but the first one had a wind speed of 95 miles an hour, so pretty bad. And it uh, did uh, cause some large tree limbs to be down, some uprooted trees, uh, snapped a couple of softwood trees, uh, approximately 20 to 30 feet off the ground. And also strong winds blew a piece of sheet metal that wrapped itself around a tree trunk. So that's some pretty crazy damage. Um, and also, uh, we had a uh, tornado touchdown near Clinton Seeds Farms along Old Farm Road. Uh, the tornado continued northeast and uprooted and snapped nearly two dozen trees. And uh, also, a small wood building at the farm was lost, uh, and the metal roof blew off. So, yeah, we had some pretty crazy damage down there in the Carolinas. Very spooky, ominous weather for Halloween. I guess Mother Nature had to stick her two cents in somehow. Uh, with the trick-or-treaters or whatever. So luckily, like I said, no fatalities, no injuries. So that's a good thing. I guess the warnings came out early enough for everyone to take cover, and uh, it all worked out in the end. So, Garrett, send it back to you. Thanks, Peter. You know, in, in, and I got to say, I was, uh, you know, watching that event unfold. It was uh, very well forecast. I think a lot of people um, – took the warning seriously. Uh, there was a lot of trick-or-treating that was delayed, um, especially up towards Charlotte, and uh, that seemed to work out really well. So uh, kudos to the meteorologists who were in the way. You know, we talked to Brad Panovich and Tim Buckley last week. Uh, you can find our episode. They uh, gave a really good breakdown of it and, it, and it went off as advertised, for better or worse. Um, that Lexington storm was scary. That thing uh, that had a tornado debris signature on it, and that is the last possible thing you want to see uh, when you have a bunch of kids potentially headed out for trick-or-treating. So um, good on everybody for heeding the warnings. Glad nobody was seriously hurt. And, um, you know, and you can always, uh, you know, weak, uh, weak storms, nothing crazy. Um, but we did get a nice little shot of cold out of that. Um, it's moderated a little bit, but we've got more to come. We got some of the coldest air of the season coming down, um, and Evan, I know that you've been looking at this. Um, I mean, there was a there was some snow after the uh, Halloween storm, and then now we're looking at uh, we've got the growing season done in a couple spots up in North Carolina, and there's more to come. Absolutely, that growing season will be kaput after next week. We've got lots of hard freeze co freezes coming. Um, but going back to what you said about the snow after Halloween, uh, it was beautiful up above i'd say 5,000 feet uh, if you're on our social media and you, you follow us you probably saw some pictures of maybe about half an inch of snow just a strong dusting on beach mountain um, and other locations and it was actually cold enough for them to blow snow up at the ski resort and catalucci opened on sunday i believe it was just for the day um, they'll be open again this upcoming weekend but they are the first ski resort in the southeast um and one of the first on the East Coast to open up this season. So enough random rambling. Let me go to what I actually prepared. All right. So over the next week, we're looking at two cold shots. Um, the first one will be a little bit milder, although I shouldn't say milder considering it's still going to be very cold. Um, 
Thursday night into Friday morning, most of the Carolinas are going to be seeing this cold front move across and filter in that first cold shot. It'll be lots of hard freezes, even potentially down into the, uh, I don't want to say, I definitely would say the eastern parts of the states, even into those lower elevations near the coast. Um, and that will be the first freeze that potentially ends the growing season for um, both of the Carolinas. In Asheville, we're looking at highs, um, potentially even into the lower 20s. And no real snow and honestly not a lot of moisture with this system. And that's going to be the same story again Tuesday night going into Wednesday. Another cold shot. This one will be even uh, potentially stronger than the one that we'll see Thursday night into Friday. Um, you know, it is still six days out, so we're trying to take everything with a grain of salt. And um, I'm not really going to be talking about any snow because I know that's being tossed around social media. Um, and Turkey Run, that potentially exists. But the snow I will talk about. Um, is the Northwest flow that the high country will be seeing Thursday night into Friday morning. And I know Ricky will probably want to talk about this again here in a minute. I've seen some of his posts, um, but maybe up to half an inch, an inch of snow up above 5,000 feet um, after the front passes, potentially even a few flakes mixing in with the uh, more synoptic scale moisture uh, that's immediately along the front front up above 6,000 feet. Just kind of a, a real light snow, nothing to get too excited about. Looking over the next 10 days, you can kind of see two distinct snow chances that we've been talking about. But again, if you look at the totals, I mean, the total snow mean across all of the Euro Ensemble members is 0.2 inches. So nothing more than flakes Friday night. And then again, um, next week. And don't get me wrong, that, that could ramp up. But for now, I'm not too excited about it. And um, it just warrants some watching. Same goes for the central and eastern parts of the Carolinas. Um, there's been lots of talk in the Raleigh area. Ken Buckley has done a great job of handling it responsibly. Um, but as you can see, once again here with all these different ensemble members, there's only a few members with any accumulating snow and even still none above one inch for that Tuesday, Wednesday timeframe. Um, but either way, snow or no snow, it's going to be really cold next week. More like honestly, January, um, then November. We're going to see highs anywhere from 20 to 30 degrees below average. Um, this is a quick screenshot of Wednesday mornings. This would be the low Wednesday morning, and that's looking at, I mean, temperatures even as low as 40 degrees below normal up into the Smokies. Um, this one model did show some snow in that run, so that's probably a little bit, ha has a bit of a cold bias, whereas if there were no snow, it wouldn't be quite as chilly. Um, but nonetheless, the whole area, both the Carolinas will see temperatures below freezing. Even in uh, parts of the mountains, we could see lows down into the teens, wind chills down below zero in the valleys, and certainly above, uh, up on the mountaintops. Uh, lastly, as I was kind of saying before, not much moisture to speak of with both of these systems, generally around half an inch, potentially even less from the WPC, uh, maybe a bit, <clears throat> a bit more up above, uh, up on Smoky Mountains, but yeah, you know, two systems to look out for, cold coming, and don't get all that excited about snow at the moment. I think the one other thing we're going to have to a lot of, uh, Evan, is a lot of rime ice on snow yeah, yeah. tops too. Uh, Rome Mountain, Carver's Gap area, parts of uh, Jefferson area, uh, Boone region, places like that. You know, with that event coming Friday night and then that prolonged Northwest flow, Probably a pretty good rhyme event up there uh, Friday and then into Saturday. The interesting thing I think about the Tuesday storm is, you know, it's one of those uh, rain changing over to snow kind of setups right now on most of the models. And one of our good buddies, uh, 
Joey always said, you know, never bet fully on a uh, rain chasing snow setup. Never go big in North Carolina on that. And so it's going to be very interesting to see just how much cold air there is and how fast that cold air filters in. And also, I think a couple things may be working against us in that forecast. One, depending on where you're at in the state, could either be daytime or it could be kind of evening. Uh, I've seen an event come through where we didn't get a whole lot of anything in the Tri-Cities area, Northeast Tennessee, Southwest Virginia, because it was daytime. And when it got to the coast of Virginia, it was nighttime. And so things were actually able to stick there just because we lost the, the sun and the solar insulation of the day. So that may be something to look for on Tuesday. And then, of course, uh, temperatures just with the, the rain coming before that as well. So always fun when we have to start forecasting snow in, what, uh, the second week here of uh, November? I know you have sarcasm in your voice, but for me, I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> you need to come on up to, uh, to Carver's Gap here one day. and We'll go uh, recreate I, when I walked through a blizzard a couple years ago up there. I snow chase up on Carver's Gap every year and tell you what, yeah. it's beautiful in the snow, my favorite place to go. It certainly is. No, that's fantastic. Uh, Peter, you guys, uh, you guys are going to deal with a fair bit of cold from this snap as well. Uh, how are things looking up in Jersey? Yeah, we, uh, we've been kind of dealing with the chilly weather already uh, the past few weeks and the chilly, damp weather since October. Uh, Halloween, we lucked out. We were supposed to get a really bad, rainy washout day, uh, but trick-or-treating got in. The, and the amount of time that we do it, three to eight here. Um, and then it just poured overnight with a really bad gusty wind. So after that, it's been kind of chilly. Uh, we've been in the 50s uh, pretty much since then. And now going into this weekend, uh, we're supposed to be going down into the 40s uh, for highs. Uh, Friday, wind chills are going to be in the 20s and 30s. So yeah, we got cold weather coming, people. So uh, real quick, GFS, you can see, uh, look at all that purple out west. Doesn't that look very ominous? Yeah. <laughs> coming in uh, for this weekend, going into parts of next week. Uh, we may get a few milder days in there, uh, but then it just comes right back again as we go towards midweek and into uh, late next week. And, uh, of course, the models keep throwing in some snow chances. <laughs> we won't even get into that right now, but... Um, there is a possibility that something could come through, uh, either rain, snow, mix, whatever. Who knows? It's still too far out. Um, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday time frame is what we're looking at. And uh, we'll see what it comes out of that. Um, but it may be just a little too warm still for any kind of snow. So we did get a little bit of snow last year around this week and next week. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll have a little redo of that again. We'll see. So, Jaron, send it back to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's a uh, that that anomaly map. You know, that that's pretty striking. I mean, you know, keeping in mind that normal is warmer. You know, this time of year than it would be in January. But you know, but I mean, those are pretty stout. Uh, so really stout Arctic air. A couple blasts coming in over the next uh, few days. So. Shay, I know down here in Charleston, we have been in uh, we've been in UGG boots weather. We had an UGG boot warning last week, um, and uh, that has since uh, been allowed to expire. But it looks like we might have to put another UGG boot watch in place uh, down here amongst us uh, for the weekend and beyond. We're we're not exempt from this down here on the coast, are we? No, nope, no, we're not. Yeah, you know, we we've had a couple of warm days here, and you know it's just that's just typical of Charleston, right? I mean, we have. We get a cool shot for a couple of days and it gets warm for two or three days. 
and then the mosquitoes come back out and everything. And then all of a sudden, boom. So we have a, a cold front that's going to be approaching Friday, which is likely going to bring some rain with it. Um, immediately behind that, high pressure is going to be building across the country. We call it continental high pressure. It's going to be driving down a northerly wedge down into our area. And that's going to drive temperatures down very rapidly through Friday night. We're looking at getting into the upper 30s just inland and maybe low 40s along the beaches. Uh, water temperatures are just getting down into the upper 60s, so that might keep things a little bit warmer just over the water. But with northerly winds, offshore winds, you're not looking at much relief there. If it was a southerly wind, you would. Um, we start to get back into that southerly flow again Sunday into Monday as another cold front approaches. So we'll have a warm up again into those days. And then we have another larger area of high pressure building across the country. It's all in association with dips in the polar jet stream that are driving this cold air down along with these large domes of high pressure. And that's going to give us another big shot of colder air for next week. We're talking highs possibly in the upper 40s to low 50s, which for us in November, it's not too far out of the unseasonal values, but it, will, it won't last for too long, maybe three, two to three days from what I'm seeing. But we could see an elongated period of north to northeast winds along the coast, which that means an additional increase or risk for flooding. So we'll have to watch as the tides are starting to come back up again. Um, we're out of the neat tides. We're, at, we're getting out of the neat tide phase. We're going to be heading back towards another full moon phase. Um, so we're going to be watching this very closely. You know, if the winds stay more offshore, we're better off. But with the northeast or east-northeast wedge building down the coast, we're looking at not only colder air, but driving waters with more flooding. So lots of events over seven feet this year, Jared. I mean, the Weather Service has, has released some of their findings, and it's, it's pretty disturbing. We can't seem yeah. to get out of the flooding. No, we can't. 76 events this year. Um, and, and just just a day or two ago, actually, the Weather Service office in Charleston uh, released uh, their statistics from 1980 to present day for uh, Charleston Harbor and Fort Pulaski. 79 events or 76 events in 2019. We're going to get to 79. I think we're going to clear 80 easily before this is over. Um, we can't. Yeah. Like Shay said, we cannot stay out of the saltwater to save our lives this year. Um, and it has been a. Uh, you know, it, it's a real problem under, and it's uh, underscoring a lot of the conversation, not just, you know, in day to day, but, you know, we have a mayoral race going on and all of that is over flooding. I mean, it, it's the flooding is one of the main uh, one of the main issues being handled in the mayoral race. So, you know, it's certainly uh, something that has been a major problem. I guess the good news is, is that some of the flood control things that we have put in place, such as the check valves on uh some of the streets have been doing a pretty good job. We've got to see them in action a few times. Uh, went driving down East Bay Street uh, in downtown Charleston, notorious for uh, pooling up very badly with salt water during a 7.8 foot tide, and it was smooth sailing. But you got down to the market, and then they haven't fixed that yet. So a lot of work to do, um, you know, stemming the tide of Mother Nature. So uh, it is that time of year. You know, we get these north yep. northeast wedges, and 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 it's just a uh, just seems to be part of the fall season for us now yep. uh, down here in Charleston. So just look, look for some windy days for the Mariners on the water. Be very wary about um, Saturday's winds in particular Sunday. We could get uh, southerly wind. We also start to get in when we get these warmer air masses ahead of these cold fronts as the sea surface temperatures drop and you get warmer air masses in that creates or sets up marine layering or what we know is fogging. So we can get these fogging events. We saw a little bit of that this morning. Um, I'll give a shout out to my friend, Mike McGee. He took some great pictures, even did some mm -hmm. droning off the Ravenel bridge up, up above the, the fog layer. Uh, so we have some fogging to maybe to look at. Um, and then if you're on the water, that's going to be enhanced 
with the cooler air masses diving down with the warmer air masses. So you got a lot of mixing there, warm and cool air, and that creates a lot of instability, which means high wind events. So mm -hmm. keep that in mind. Keep up with your forecast for the winds uh, over your area, even if from the north can be pretty brutal out there across the harbor and offshore. Yeah, absolutely. So, yep. So we'll just, uh, you know, we'll put on our rug boots and then have the rain, have the water boots on standby for when uh, the tide inevitably uh, breaches seven feet in the harbor. And uh, well, let's see. Let's, you know what? Let's just go for it. Let's just see how many flood days we can get this year and just hope 2020 is better. But you know, let's be re also be realistic that 2020 probably won't be better uh, as far as that goes. So, so anyway, um, you know, it, you know, as far as uh, the weather goes otherwise, uh, you know, down here in the southeast, I mean, you know, abnormal chill. Uh, baking out west, uh, you know, their fire season is still going on in California. Um, that's not going to abate anytime soon. So, you know, troughing the east, ridge in the west, and we're just going to stay uh, chilly and uh, occasionally unsettled. And that's just the, and that's November in a nutshell. So, uh, <laughs> If, if anybody on the panel wants to jump in, um, got any final thoughts before we sign off um, this evening? I'm hating on Cinnabon tonight. <laughs> Go I ahead, Shane. Peter's always cheating on Cinnabon. He's, he's, he's cross-pollinating all of his products and confusing the, the, the potential sponsors. So I want to give a hats off to Levi Cowan of Tropical Tidbits who received his doctorate this past week. So if, um, if you know who he is and you've been watching Tropical Tidbits for many years, he's had his website up and running. He's finally Dr. Cowan. So hats off to him for receiving that and, and uh, going through his dissertation and defending his, his work. And he did very well. So, hey, man, I'm happy for That's him. That's fantastic. Uh, it, Tropical Tidbits is one of those indispensable sites, especially during hurricane season, which is, fine, is thankfully dormant. We don't have any random batches of clouds being classified as subtropical systems. So, yay. Um, very happy to see hurricane season uh, fade out into the ether. And of course, by saying that, I'm sure we'll have something spin up tomorrow. But uh, anyway, uh, one last thing before we go. Um, Unless anybody else wants to jump in with any final thoughts, any other final, final thoughts. Um, but before we go, we do want to mention, we want to thank everybody for their outpouring of support for Scotty Powell and, uh, and, and his mom. Uh, as you uh, may have heard, his mom had a pretty significant medical event a couple weeks ago. The good news is, is that she's doing great. Uh, she's really coming along well. Uh, and, um, you know, we really, uh, we're really thankful for that. And our, our prayers and our thoughts continue to be with the Powell family as she continues her road to recovery. Um, there is a Facebook, uh, fundraiser for them. As you know, travel back and forth from, uh, Morganton to Charlotte is not, you know, it's, it's not free. Um, healthcare costs, we know that the, that can, that can build up. And so, uh, there is a, uh, Facebook fundraiser. We have it on the website. We're showing it on the screen right now. Um, if you if you feel so moved to chip in a little bit to help the Powell family out, uh, we know that we would appreciate it, and I know that they would appreciate it very much. But uh, but anyway, I, I uh, continued thoughts, continued prayers for the Powell family and uh, Scotty's mom, uh, who uh, is uh, you know reading the updates is uh, really coming through about as well as one can expect. And so uh, you know, still some things not still some things to go, but uh, very encouraging nonetheless. So. 
with that, that's going to put that's going to do it for last 200 numbered show 299 next week. 815. We will be celebrating 300 episodes of the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, we've been at this a long time. Ricky and Scotty started this, so got five, six years ago now, something like that. Um, and uh, it, it just, uh, it, it is just incredible what it's what it's turned into. So we're gonna have a we're gonna have a nice episode, a really cool episode, showing some of our favorite scenes uh, from the uh, from the last few years of the Carolina Weather Group. First three hundred episodes, uh, hopefully three hundred more to come. So, so anyway, so for the panel. Uh, I'm Jared Smith, and this will do it for, for the 299th edition of the Carolina Weather Group. We will see you same time next week. Take care.